Um, Lord, today we need to hear uh, something good. <laughs> the, everything around us is just filled with acrimony and polarization and bad news. And so today we're here to hear something good about the goodness of God. And so I pray that you would impress that on the hearts and the minds of every person listening, listening to these words right now. We pray this in your name. And everybody who wanted to hear something good said, Amen. You can have a seat wherever you might be. Hey, can I give you just a little bit of a heads up as to what's coming? Uh, there's some folks here in the room. It's Saturday night and um, at the end of the service, just by the way, we're going to take communion together. So if you need to take a few minutes right now, I'm going to give a, a kind of a, a heads up what's going and you need to grab some crackers and some water or whatever you got works and in the room. I think you may have gotten those when you came in. Uh, we're going to receive the elements of communion together at the close of the service. Uh, but just want to give you a little bit of a heads up. Next Sunday, we're going to be back to Sunday morning uh, worship in, in the building, in the worship center. And it's, it might be a little confusing. So We've got some, some pictures here that are on the screen, those of you that are watching uh, from wherever you might be. At 9.30 in the morning, there'll be a service here in the worship center, and at the same time in the chapel, there will be a live feed, uh, and we're calling that the vulnerable zone. So if you're in the vulnerable category, meaning you've got a compromised immune system, uh, you're in the age range that people say are, the CDC says is the, is the vulnerable age range. If you fit in that category and you want a safe, sequestered place, that is the spot for you. Uh, you can enter through the west doors. So if you're in Wichita and you're looking for a place to worship um, the west doors, you can find that. There'll be a sign out front that says vulnerable zone. You can enter there, exit there. Uh, it'll be by itself. We won't let anybody back there. We won't let Larry Page back there because I don't know what happens. He's fist pumping in the back there. Uh, but yeah, it's the vulnerable zone, 930, that happens. And then at 1045, we know that if you've got little kids uh, sitting them down in a room for an hour takes a miracle of God. Can I get an amen from everyone who's raised small children? Uh, so here's what we decided. If you want to be in the worship center, you are welcome Listen, it will not bother me. Uh, kids crying is a sign of life. And so uh, bring them on. If you want to be in the worship center, want you here. But we also have in the gym, and you can enter, uh, those of you who are familiar with our building, the north gym door will be a sign. There'll be a little blow-up thing. And the, it's gonna, there's going to be coloring things for kids, a few stations they can do a few different things at. And so if your kids are squirmy and they're making noise and you're embarrassed about that or you just want to have a little bit of freedom, There'll be a live feed of the service there. So there's two options, two services in person, 930, 1045. Go to firstnaz.org reopen. It'll be open now as, a, as of the time you're hearing these words, and um, you can join us in person. And when you're ready, we're ready. Now, at the same time, next week, we're going to be starting a new series. I, here's what I've heard from multiple people. They have said, I'm just drifting. And what I have found is that when you're drifting, you need to reorient yourself in a certain direction. So we're going to do a series uh, to help you refocus, and we're going we're to dive down into a uh, set of the Psalms. The Psalms is a prayer book. If you have an old-fashioned Bible like I have here, and you go right to the middle, it's the Psalms, which is a Hebrew word for songs or poems. And there are, um, from Psalm 120 through 134, what are known as the Songs of Ascent. 
It was the songs that the pilgrims would sing on their way up to Jerusalem, literally and metaphorically up to God's presence. We all need somewhere to focus, and so we're going to spend some time uh, in the songs of ascent, and we're going to do some creative things through the series, refocusing ourselves. So whether you're online or in person, that's going to start next week, songs of ascent. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm going to go up wherever you're sitting. I'm going to go up. Okay, I want to invite you to stand with me wherever you might be as we read the scriptures together. We've been mostly in the book of Acts, and uh, we're going to look at one more passage as we close the series out today and get ready for next week. Um, Acts chapter 15, it'll be on the screen so that you can see it, and I will read it aloud, and you can follow along. Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. That was their pattern. They'd go around and they would start churches and they said, let's go back and check on them. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Listen, verse 39. They had such a sharp disagreement like Christians always get along, right? People of faith never have problems with other people of faith, right? Yeah, okay. Uh, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, went through Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated wherever you are. Thank you so much for standing. Well, I want to talk to you today about something really important, and I want to give you some permission and I want to talk to you today about the joy of not being perfect. The joy of not being perfect. Uh, I've, I've just honestly, all my life, I have wrestled with the need to be perfect. And uh, if I'm honest, because <laughs> we're all humans, uh, all my life I have come up short in that pursuit. Anyone else? Just me? Okay. It is just me. Because just Lauren... Culver, right down there, and me. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, so I want to tell you a story uh, from my childhood. And can I do that without you judging me? Will you not, will you not look at me and go, oh, well, we know what's wrong with you now. Um, please don't psychoanalyze me and don't categorize me. But I need to tell you a story about my third grade teacher. I've told this in some settings before, so if you've heard this story, this will just be a fun refresher for you. Um, but I was in the third grade. Uh, my teacher was Mrs. Healy. I think we've got a, a picture that's going to be on the screen behind me. Not my actual class not my actual teacher, so that's not Mrs. Healy. So when, I, when you hear this story, you're going to hate Mrs. Healy, I promise. Uh, don't hate this lady, it's not her. Uh, just, just for reference. So Mrs. Healy, I'm sitting in the third grade, and I'm, I, honestly, I was a good student. Um, I got good grades. My teachers liked me. I was kind of the teacher's pet. I was kind of the kid you hated, in all honesty. And so I'm sitting there in third grade, and, and back in the day, uh, we taught children how to write in cursive. Anybody? Cursive? Anybody remember? Cursive, yeah, okay. So we were writing in cursive, and, and we were learning all the, like, the loops and all the, around the letters, and, and Mrs. Healy said, okay, class, and I love Mrs. Healy to this point in my life. I'm still working through it. Uh, but I, Mrs. Healy said, uh, class, is there anyone who would like to come up on the board and uh, demonstrate, you know, whatever the exercise was? I, I vividly remember, you know, I'm, the, I'm the, the, the overachiever. I raise my hand, do this number in the back. I was on the right as you're looking at the, at, the, at the board, on the back, about four seats. But I still remember. You know, so I get up out of my seat. I walk up to the board. Chalkboard back in the day. Can I get an amen for chalkboards? 
And, and so I take, the, I take the thing, and, you know, of course, I think I'm great. I think I'm fantastic. And I, I wrote, you know, my L with the loop and then whatever the next letter was. And, and I kind of smugly and, you know, pridefully walked back to that row on the right side, four seats back, sat back down. I'm expecting Mrs. Healy to say to me, class, has, has there ever been an L written more succinctly and beautifully than what Scott just wrote? I mean, that's what I'm expecting, right? And so what she says is, don't hate her, because <laughs> I might still. Uh, class, do you see how the L goes this way and the E goes that way? Class, now this is what I heard in my third, I mean, she probably didn't say it quite this harshly. Class, that is not how you write cursive. Do you see this? I, I, in my mind, she said class and told the, gave this speech for probably 10 minutes. It probably was three lines, right? But in the, in the third grade, I still remember on the right, four seats back, sitting there, crushed. How did I screw that up? Realizing I did not get it right. And deciding in that moment, I'm never going to let that happen again. Now, I'm telling you that story because I dare say most of us have some story. Maybe it doesn't involve Mrs. Healy, your third grade teacher, but there is for most of us a moment when we realize we were supposed to be getting right, but that we were getting it wrong. That's the basic experience of humanity. And, and listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to say by this story that I'm not trying to say uh, that we shouldn't work to get better. I mean, do you want a pilot on a plane to fail 7% of the time? Not so much, right? Do you want a doctor uh, to, you know, yeah, you know, I, get, I, you know I, I do my surgeries right about 87.5%. You, you want, no. You want them to do it really well. The, the people creating the vaccines, we want them to do it well. I'm not talking about the performance of key tasks. You know, please get better on those things. What I'm trying to say is that you and I are carrying a burden that hurts us, and we're trying all the time to somehow transcend our humanity, and it's killing us. And what I want to do today is I want to give you permission to be free. Sometimes I've found we need permission. Famous story of a guy named John Maxwell. He's probably one of the 10 most influential leaders in the world. He's a Christian guy. He used to be a pastor, and now he has an organization, travels around the world. He tells a story about he went into McDonald's one time, and um, he wanted a, a cup with just ice and nothing in it. And there was no, on the, you know, the 16-year-old taking his order, there was nothing on the screen for a cup of ice. And so she looked at him and looked at the screen and then looked at him and then looked at the screen and, and said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And he said, no, I, 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 want, a, I want a cup of ice. See, the machine is over there. And I want one of those cups, and I want to... And he realized that she just didn't have permission to do something that wasn't on the screen. That's kind of life, isn't it? And so he said, he realized what was happening, and he said, you know what? I give you permission to go walk over there and get me a cup, and let me take it and put some ice in it. And you know what she did? She went and got a cup and put the ice in it. Uh, and and he, he uses the story to illustrate the fact that sometimes we need someone to give us permission, and I want to give you permission today to be free. Touch your neighbor, even if you're sitting on your couch, and say, I'm going to be free. I'm going to be free. Now, I actually think 
that religion is one of the sources of the burden that hurts us. Uh, because when you talk about God and we talk about expectations, you're raising the bar to an incredibly high level. And this is what I've discovered, though, about frustration, is that frustration is a limb on the tree of expectation. In other words, the source of our frustration, whenever you're frustrated, you can always trace its roots back to some expectation you had that didn't work. And, and again, I think religion is one of the forces that, that causes this experience. Like we're never quite getting it right and we're always trying to. And the, the, I found that it works in, in two primary ways. There's other ways too. Uh, but the first thing is this, is that it works through our experience of God. Now, what do I, what do I mean by that? What are you saying, Scott? Well, we, we say, okay, God is perfect, so then God must expect perfection out of me. And there are actually some verses in the Bible that kind of seem on the surface to give us this message. You can even listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. This is how Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, our English translation of a, the Greek language, be, what's the word there? Perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is, what's the word? Perfect, right? So if you hear that and you, you think, well, okay, God is expect, expecting perfection. Now, you might not know that the word there is the Greek word telos, which means purpose. And the context Jesus is talking about is specifically loving people not like you. And he's saying God loves people that are not kind to him, and he gives rain to them and sun to them, and you need to be the same way. And so what we do, instead of understanding the context, is we absorb the word without the context, and we supply the meaning from the dictionary of our own fears instead of what the Bible is actually saying. And so we tell ourselves, well, then I must be perfect, right? And it's a standard you can't ever attain. Or we're unsure of how relational God is, and so maybe you have an idea. Maybe it's just, you've never said this out loud. But you have in your head, well, God is this kind of unblinking stare in the sky. I mean, he's unchanging perfection, and he's truth, and he's just waiting for you to mess up. I have a friend who says that one of the reasons that Jesus came, and maybe the primary reason Jesus came, was to change God's reputation for us and to heal how we see and understand God. And Jesus even tells this really profound story. You've probably heard it before, Luke chapter 15. We know it as the, the story of the prodigal son, but it's really about a father who waits for his son. His son rejects him, and then he waits for him. Now, and if you know that story in Luke chapter 15, famous story, I want you to notice something important, and, and honestly, it never gets said in sermons because us pastors have been way too anxious about managing God's image and, and what I want you to notice in the story means that, that God identifies with a father who apparently did not do something right. Because here's what happens in the story. The father has uh, all of his resources, and one of his kids, his youngest son, comes to him and says, in essence, gives him a, you know, a, one of the fingers, um, and, and says, I want everything that's mine. I want it right now, which was a way of saying, I wish you were dead and I hate your guts. And in the story, the father gives it to him, and, the, and that son leaves. Now, I'm telling you that, that in the story, Jesus is helping us understand that, uh, that God identifies with a father who apparently didn't do something right because the kid left. And that's a very different picture of how relational God is. Now, listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to cause you doubt that God isn't perfect or holy. 
God is what we are not. I'm trying to help us see a view of God that has kept us at a distance from God, regardless of whatever we say we believe. Because you, you, you have you know, the words you say about God, but then in reality, when it comes down to brass tacks, everyday life, God is so unapproachable that you can't ever get anything wrong. And in the story, Jesus shows us how God identifies us. Because listen, parents in the room, when your kid is not getting something right, this is universal. You as a parent, if you're a good parent, you say something like, what did I do wrong? And if you've ever had the experience, and, and, and thankfully I've not had this experience, I hope I never do, but I've walked a whole lot of parents through it, where a kid does what that younger son does and basically says, I hate your guts, I'm leaving. The amount of shame that that parent feels like, what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently? God, please don't punish you. Are you punishing my family because of something I did? And, and we're frustrated with ourselves because we can't live up to the expectations we think God has of us. God's so appeared in our estimation of him. The second reason I think religion creates this, you know, this angst about not being perfect and we don't have joy about our imperfections is our experience of the church, you know, and if we, maybe we get God right, maybe we have a, a right picture of what God's like, and, but then you, you know, go, you say, okay, well, God created me, and, and you know, God's perfect, and, and God forgives me, and God overlooks my imperfections, and then I come in among God's people, and, you know, God knows what I'm about. He knows where I came from, and he forgave me, and I come to the church, and you don't. You know, God, God forgives me, but the family he created won't, or God doesn't judge me, but the family he created does? What? And so growing on the tree of our expectations is frustration and disappointment and doubt. And we don't know what to do. It creates this cognitive dissonance in us. Now, you may be saying at this point, especially if you've been around this, you may be saying, well, wait a second, you're giving excuses to people to be in the wrong and just to stay with it. No, no. I am trying to give you permission to be a human being. Um, neither you nor the church have to be perfect, and, and you and I need to find the joy of not being perfect, which is what we're talking about today. Now, Scott, how did you get off on this tangent? I mean, you read this, this thing about Paul and how he's mad at Mark, and what, what are you talking about? Well, I read you that story because it's kind of the subtext of the book of Acts, and honestly, the whole Bible. And, and it is this, is that the, the church, and especially all the people in the Bible, frankly, with the exception of Jesus, um, you could read all of those stories as an exercise in people getting it wrong as examples of imperfect people. So you could start with that story of, of uh, Paul and Mark and Silas in Acts chapter uh, um, 15. You know, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. You know, here are these two giants of the faith, and they somehow can't get along. Well, that's imperfect people, isn't it? You just see things differently. If you backed up into Acts chapter 15, um, what you would find is there was a council there, and I preached a message on this a, a number of months ago, actually, uh, and the council decided, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, Acts chapter 15, verse 19, um, they, they did this finding, like there were, there were the Jews, and then the Gentiles were starting to receive the message of salvation through Jesus, 
And the Jews, who were the first followers of Jesus, were like, well, do they have to do all the, keep all the rules that you and I have to keep in the Old Testament, the 613? Do they have to do all that? And they had a council in Acts chapter 15. And one of my favorite verses of Scripture, it needs to be over the door of every church. It's, it, this is the brother of James who said this. He said, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. Like, no church should ever do that, right? Well, all you have to do is you read, a, you read ahead to Acts chapter 21. Same people who came up with this beautiful thing, like, we're not going to add this pile. Paul comes back into town, and they say, you know what? Uh, you know, there are some Jewish people, and they think you're not keeping all the laws. And so what we want you to do is we want you to go, there's these other guys over here, and they made this religious vow, and there's some money that they owe. And so to prove to everybody that you'll keep the law, that we said in Acts chapter 15 that people didn't have to keep anymore, but we want you to make sure you keep it. So will you pay their way, and then it'll prove to everybody, Acts chapter 21, verse 24, then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. They didn't see their own hypocrisy, or they weren't ready to change it. Imperfect people. Uh, Peter in the garden with Jesus, when all the, the soldiers are there, and, and Peter takes his sword, and he cuts off the ear of that soldier. I mean, what is that? It's imperfect people, right? Thomas, he's the, he's the disciple. What is Thomas known for? Doubt. Like, until I see your hands, until I put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. Imperfect people. Acts chapter 12, Peter is in prison. An angel releases Peter from prison, and all the Christians are praying. They're like, oh, God, release Peter from prison. And uh, he, he, he's released from prison in answer to their prayer. And he goes to the door, and he knocks on the door. A girl named Rhoda is there, and Rhoda answers the door. And she doesn't believe that what they've been praying for could actually happen because there's Peter. And she goes back. She's like, I think I saw Peter's ghost. <laughs> and they say, what? Oh, my gosh. And they eventually do go to the door, and they realize, oh, my word, there's Peter. Imperfect people. Now, listen, if you read the Bible, it will seem to you like that's the only kind of people through whom God does his work. Imperfect people. Less than right people. People with blind spots. People with prejudices. People who can't get over stuff. People who hold things over other people's heads. I know those people. I pastor those people. I am, frankly, those people. So if you aren't perfect, you're in very good company. The church is supposed to be the repository of broken people. The church is to be, said it last week, the hospital for sinners. The church is to be the one place where you don't have to have it together. It's the joy of being imperfect. Now, what are, what are the sources? Where, where does our imperfections come from? How does God deal with our imperfections? What's he going to do about it? And then how do we get to finding joy in the fact that I'm not perfect? I mean, this is like, Scott, you're telling me I'm supposed to be happy about my screw-ups? What are you talking about? Well, what, what, where does our imperfections come from? Well, we're Christians, so we read the Bible, and so what we would say that our imperfections come from two places. They come from our sin, and they come from our wounds or our brokenness. Now, I want to tell you, those are not those are not the same thing. I'm not talking about the same thing. Your sin and my sin, let's just call that the dirt. And it's the decisions and the choices and the attitudes I choose for which I am responsible, and which I am wrong, and hurt other people. Those are the things I choose. That's, that's the dirt. 
But then there's brokenness, there's wounds, that's the hurt, it's the patterns and the responses that come from things done to me. It's the accumulation of pain. You've heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people? Yeah, because it comes from hurt. Now here's what I've noticed, I've noticed the cycle that happens. Um, Dirt causes hurt in a person's life. You know, they make a choice, it's a really bad choice, it's a really dumb choice, it's wrong, it's 100% in the wrong direction, it's 100% against what God says is best, and it causes hurt to someone else, And then maybe because that person is hurt, they choose some dirt seeking relief from the hurt. So dirt causes hurt, and hurt causes you to choose dirt. It's like this cycle. How do you get out of this cycle? And and what I have found is that that sin and brokenness, dirt and hurt, are often confused and conflated. Because listen, listen, this is super, super important. This will set you free. You can't get therapy for sins. And you can't repent of your brokenness. Let me say that to you again. This is super important that you get this. You can't get therapy for your sins and you can't repent of your brokenness. You have to repent of your sins. You have to see the damage it causes and choose a different way. And, and you, have to re- you have to find healing for your brokenness. You have to find healing for your wounds. I, I know well-meaning people who try to ask forgiveness for wounds. They've been hurt. And they're trying, trying to heal the hurt by saying they're sorry for having it. Listen, you cannot repent of depression. You can't repent of a suicide attempt. You can't repent of abuse. That's not how you, that's not how you heal those things. Nor, is, nor does God intend that. But I know plenty of people who think, I did, I must have, that must mean I'm wrong. And so I got I to say, I'm, I'm sorry, God, that I was abused. No, no, it wasn't your fault. And at the same time, you can't go to therapy to get out of adultery. It's not going to work. You can't repent of that. And so people try to repent of their brokenness, and they don't understand how their hurts are still influencing them. And then at the same time, people are trying to heal their sins and minimize their actions and choices. Now listen, this is the human condition. The grace of God is for human people. It's not for perfect people. I love how the Apostle Paul sums up his mission. You're looking for a mission statement? This is a fantastic one. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Paul articulates his purpose in life. If you're looking for, I need a purpose in life, here you go. Acts 20, verse 24. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. What's that? The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Listen, if you are perfect, you don't need grace, right? Perfect people don't need grace. Only imperfect people need grace. And that's why Paul said, that's why God sent me, is to tell the good news to people that there's grace for your imperfections. Now, how does God deal with our imperfections? Now, uh, God does it differently than you and I do it. You, you and I um, we make contracts with people. God makes covenants with people. What's a contract? Contract is, you know, you go to buy a home and you, you sign, you know, sign a contract. And, and, you know, we just bought a home not long ago and you sign the contract. And, and there's all these clauses that if that, the other party of the contract doesn't do their part, then you are released from your obligations of the contract. You no longer have to perform your part of the contract. And, and so if you break your deal, then I am out. So the contract is based on your performance. No grace. Oh, broke the contract. Contract null and void. And that's how you and I usually relate. That's, and that honestly is how we think we relate to God. 
with a contract. But what God does is he makes covenants. How do you say that, Scott? Where do you get that from? Well, you go to Genesis chapter 15, and you read the story of Abram before he becomes Abraham, before God gives him the name. Um, Abram means daddy, and Abraham means big daddy. That's basically what the, what the two words mean. And, and he's Abram, and um, he has this. If you've ever read Genesis 15, and you've gone, what in the world is going on? I'm going to explain to you what is going on in Genesis chapter 15. God comes to Abram, and he says to him in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. I'm going to protect you. You're a very great reward. I'm going to provide for you. And then Abraham, if God came to you and said those things, you would say, ha Verse 2, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, he's, he's complaining to God. He's like, you said you're going to protect me and you're going to provide me, but I have no children and I'm about to give everything that I have to some guy I just hired last Tuesday because that's all I got. And so then God says to him, well, Abram, look at the sky, count the stars, if indeed you can, and so shall your offspring be, makes this promise, makes this promise to Abram. And then what Paul, in verse uh, verse 6, what Paul, later in the New Testament, says, this is the example of what it means to have faith. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He's like, okay, you said it, you're going to do it. And then he wants a promise. So he's like, oh, tell me, how are you going to make this work, God? I mean, I want to know. And Abraham uh, said, verse 8, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And then the, 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 the scriptures, verse 9, very clearly articulates how that's going to happen. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young, young pigeon. You know, like you do. <laughs> what in the world is going on? Right there. Well, I'll tell you what's going on because we don't, we don't know the context and so we just, like, that seems like a non sequitur. Like, doesn't, it doesn't jive. And that was an ancient way of making a covenant. It actually predated the scriptures, but when you wanted to make a covenant with somebody and enter into a relationship with them, then there would be blood that would be shed. And so what Abram did is he took those things that the Lord said to give and he cut them in half and he put one side of the heifer here and one over here and one half of the goat here and the ram and one half here and, and the dove. And, the, and, and there's this, so you could, can you picture the scene, right? All these bloody animals and there's this path of blood right here. And you read a little further down in Acts 15 and, and um, Abram's there and he's fighting off all the animals that are come trying to eat it and, and he falls asleep and this smoking fire pot goes through between the pieces. And, and so here's, here's what it symbolizes. And this was the word for when you would make a covenant, you would cut a covenant. And then you and your covenant partner would walk through this birth canal to a new relationship of mutual commitment and grace. So it would be, now I don't know, you know, I'm not, my kids are sitting in the room, so I don't want to get any ideas, but remember when you were a kid and you would have like guys, maybe this was a guy thing, and you would have a friend and you would, you would be blood brothers, you know, and you would... Maybe this was just a weird thing in Nebraska. Sorry if you're all looking at me like, what? What are you talking about? Well, you, so what you do is you like get a little cut, and then you would shake hands, and you would mix blood, and then you would be blood brothers, and it would be like, we're in this together. It's kind of like that. But here's what a covenant said. I am irrevocably committed to you, and what's mine is yours. So God's saying to Abram, I am irrevocably committed to you, and whatever I have, now you have. And, and our relationship is now, everything you do is now based on the relationship with you have. Now, Paul, he's trying to tell us, because he knew the Old Testament forwards and back. 
He said, this is the basis of grace. We are in a covenant with God. And on the cross, what Jesus did with his blood is he cut a covenant with us and says, I am irrevocably committed to you, and whatever is mine is yours. Now, here's what I know. You cannot have grace on the basis of a contract because it doesn't exist. You can only have grace on the basis of a covenant. A contract expects performance. A covenant allows for humanity. So you, with your sin and with your brokenness, with your dirt and with your hurt, you are, because of Jesus on the cross, shedding his blood, you are God's covenant partner. Now listen, I, this is why I want to give you permission to be free. So many people, even though they hear all the, it's like, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. In practice, they have a contractual relationship with God. They have a relationship with Mrs. Healy in the sky. They're like, you're fine until you go up and you do the wrong thing and then you're cut out. But that's not how God relates to us. God relates to us with a covenant. Now, great, Scott. Interesting Bible story. <laughs> What do we do with that? How, I'm, I'm actually an imperfect person, and I know that too well. How in the world am I supposed to find joy in my imperfections? Well, joy comes from having God's grace. It's why it's the good news of God's grace. And I realize all too much how imperfect I am and how fall I far short and how much I get it wrong. One of the great prayers of the church, there are many prayers, a lot of traditions, you know, you pray and and kind of like we do, we pray and these extemporaneous prayers, meaning we just kind of come up with it off the cuff. But a lot of traditions have written prayers. And one of the traditions uh, uh, in the, the Christian church has what's known as the Great Confessions. Beautiful. Look it up. Google it. Don't do it now. Um, but Google it sometime. Look at the, the Great Confession. And, and it's this beautiful way of saying to God, God, we confess that we have sinned against you. We have, we have sinned against you in word, thought, and deed, both, word, thought, and deed, both by what we have done and left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourself. We humbly confess. And it's, it's this way of saying, okay, there's grace for my mess. And the good news is that you are not perfect. And the, the better news than that is God already planned for your imperfections. So how do we make this practical? Okay, because I'm, I'm about like, how do you do this on Monday? not just hear a sermon on Sunday and then go, well, that was nice. You, we, you and I have to change our expectations. Remember, frustration is a limb on the tree of expectation. And so what we have to do is we have to cut off that limb by changing our expectations. So I've got two things. I've got two phrases. If you want to write these down, put them on your mirror and take them every day and pray them every day. I, I, would, I would invite you to do that to receive the grace of God. This is the first thing. I just want to say this for us as a church, that this is, has to be the, the, the message over, the message of grace over our church. And this is the message of grace. No perfect people allowed. Just turn to your neighbor and say, no perfect people allowed. That means you. So here's, here's how that works. Like, I'm not perfect, which means I'm allowed. You are not perfect, which means that you are allowed. Now listen, once you and I show up, it's not perfect anymore. So if you're looking for the perfect church, the minute you showed up, it is not perfect anymore. Thanks a lot for ruining for all of us, right? No perfect people allowed. Second thing is this. The church is for sinful and broken people. 
Now, I have to start with me. So I am one of the sinful people, and I don't see how deep it goes. So are you. I am one of the broken people, and I'm blind to it. I have blind spots. So are you. Now, you, you may object to this, and you may say, well, we're part of the church of the Nazarene. You know, we're holiness people, and we're all about Christian perfection. That's if you know our theology, you've heard that phrase used before. Um, but no, it's not about perfect people. We are, we are the being perfected people. Now, I won't get into an English lesson there, but that means the action is not taking place by you and me. It means we're being perfected, means someone else is doing the action, namely God. We are the people who are allowing God to change us moment by moment. So holy people are actually the most humble and the most realistic and the most gracious people because we're the most aware of how broken and sinful we are. We're like, we got no way to hold anything over your head because I am so aware of what I am wrestling with and I am so aware of the grace of God that I need that I have no way of holding that over your head because holiness is first about hope. It's about having hope that you're not stuck in your patterns and in, and in your dirt and in your hurt. You can get out of that cycle. You can actually make it out. You can actually have hope. And so it, it, holiness has to get cast in terms of love, not moral purity. Now, now, you might, wait a second, wait, what are you saying? Now, I'm not saying we're not moral people. I'm saying once you start with love and hope, then God changes who you are and you actually become a moral person. But when you start with keep all the rules and do all the things, you never become a person of love and hope. So many of us are focused on our performance of the contracts we think God has with us. Not on our relationship based on the covenant that God made with us. And so we have to stop trying to please the Mrs. Healy God and start accepting the love of Father God. 